0: Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of August the 28th, and we continue in our brief series on looking at the life of Christ and looking at some of those significant events in the life of Jesus. Today, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion, um, and I want to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be uh, used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, in our series um, that highlights the life of Jesus, we have come to that which is absolutely preeminent above everything else. It's the scene of the crucifixion. And through the 2,000 years plus since Jesus hung there on the cross, there have been literally hundreds and hundreds of books written about this event. Every every generation is gripped by this remarkable thing, that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. And there have been books written for every generation to try to recapture it, to try to bring that to life again. But all this collection of literature simply highlights the fact that the cross of Christ has been the central aspect in Christian thinking. Because as Christians, we feel that, that here in this event, there, there's such transcending significance, such remarkable meaning. It's so full of importance for humanity that it really can never be exhausted. And so we've centered all of Christian faith around this supreme event in the life of, of Jesus. It's interesting, in almost every other major world religion, the death of the leader is not a major event. It's something that happens. It's something that occurred, but it's not regarded in any sense as the significant or the main thing. And in these other religions, the central thing is the teachings of that leader. Christianity is not. It's not as Buddhism or Hinduism is, for instance, a religion of ideas or philosophy. It is rather a religion of facts, of deeds, the acts of God in human history. And because of that, it's grounded in this stream of, of human history directly. Now, this is what the Gospels make clear, that the cross of Jesus is the supreme fact in a series of facts. So let's come back to look at the cross and remember that the cross was to Jesus this inescapable part of his work. Uh, The cross was not some unfortunate accident that came at the end of the life of Jesus. It it was not something that he simply could not foresee and and was the result of, of poor planning on his part. The cross was a deliberately chosen path for Jesus. It was an agony which he he knew, he foresaw from the very beginning and which he accepted and that he set himself toward it. He ne- never varied away from it. And we can't read the gospel accounts of the cross without realizing that the cross was really avoidable if Jesus had chosen to avoid it. But he deliberately insisted on it. Right up to the end, when he was praying in the agony in the garden, after Judas had slipped out into the night to arrange those final details of betrayal, Jesus went with his other disciples into the darkness of the garden to pray, to wait for the coming of the guards. He could have slipped away. There was a good long time before the guards arrived. And Bethany, well, it was just over the hill where Mary and Martha and Lazarus and other friends were waiting. He could have easily slipped around the corner of a hill into the darkness, right down across to Jericho and the Jordan and into safety. But he deliberately waited until the guards came to get him, knowing that they were on the way. And when he stood before the high priest. Caiaphas, remember, and and, and was charged by the high priest as to whether he was the son of God or not. Legally, he had every right to remain silent. Jewish law said that an accused person did not need to defend himself or answer the accusations made against him. He could have remained silent, but he didn't. He opened his mouth and answered them and so incriminated himself. So they they cried out and said, "Why, why do we need any further witnesses? Out of his own mouth, he's testified. And he sealed his doom by speaking up. When they brought him before the Roman governor, Pilate, he had every right to speak up in his own defense. Roman law said that an accused person had the right to answer the charges that were made against him. But in this case, he refused to answer the charges of Pilate. And he remained silent before his questions. And so really, he left Pilate almost no alternative. He, he gave him no, no foothold, so to speak, to find a way out, even though Pilate was desperately trying to find a way that he could deliver him, short of, of course, laying down his own political career. As we read these accounts, it's obvious that, that what Paul writes of Jesus is literally true. He became obedient unto death. He didn't have to die but he deliberately chose to die. The account of the Gospels is the, true, is the story of a man who is arranging his own death and directing the process by which it's going to be accomplished. So in the face of that stubborn fact that Jesus deliberately went to death, that he arranged it, he insisted on it, I think we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does he do this? And through the centuries, there have been a lot of attempts to answer that question. There's what used to be called modernism. It's, it's an old liberalism which said that Jesus was simply demonstrating in as dramatic fashion as possible the cause which he was upholding. That, that he was showing that truth is worth dying for. And that he deliberately died in order that the moral influence of that death might grab us, grip us, and show us that, that a cause is worth dying for. But the problem with that explanation is that it does not take into consideration at all the many predictions of Jesus and his death and the constant emphasis on its supreme importance. Remember, he said to his mother at the first miracle at Cana in Galilee, when he turned the water into wine and she came and she suggested that he do that he do something with the, the lack of wine, you know, to supply it. You know, obviously she had some miracle in mind. And, and he said to her woman, what do I have to do with this? My hour is not yet come. By which he meant simply, I will do this thing that you ask, but I want you to understand something. This is not going to accomplish the results that you think it will. There is still an event that's going to come, which alone will make possible what it is you're after. You see, she wanted him to be accepted by the people as the Messiah. And he said, I'll do this. But it's not going to have that result. My hour is not yet come. And all through his life he looked forward to the cross as the only thing that would break through the darkness of understanding of man, of humanity, and make known to us what God was trying to say. It had to take a cross. Now there's the explanation also of the death of Christ in what we might could call a shallow Fundamental fundamentalistic. <laughs> there you go. Um, view that suggests that Jesus was a tender hearted mediator between God and man. That God has is a wrathful, vengeful being who is dis- disturbed about the signs of, of people, the sins of people, and who is ready to just basically hurl lightning bolts of his anger from heaven against it. But then Jesus stepped in and, and placated the wrath of God, of an angry God, and, and allowed God to take out all of his anger and vengeance and wrath on him. And so his justice was satisfied, and he was free then to do something different towards us, towards humanity. But the trouble with that idea, even though it does have truth in it, and it has grains of truth in it, is that it also does not line up with what the Scripture says about God the Father. Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and the father's heart was as involved in the cross as the son was and the love of god was straining and longing and reaching out to humanity before the cross as much as the love of the son before and then there's a theory along the line of what we'll call perhaps um, existentialism or neo-orthodoxy and this is the suggestion that the death of jesus didn't really happen on the cross or if it did it isn't important whether it's historically took place or not but but this is simply a story that symbolizes for us what happens in our own life when as guilty men and women we come to the realization of the holy otherness of God and this idea is suggesting that humanity becomes aware that God is utterly different than us and in experiencing the uniqueness of this forgiving grace we go through a time of tension and pressure that is exemplified and symbolized in the cross of Jesus. Now, in all these ideas, there is a grain of truth, but in this last one, it fails to explain the record of scriptures because it removes the historical basis of the cross. And perhaps there's nothing more significant and more helpful in Christian faith than to remember that our faith rests on events, on acts, on historical things that occurred that can that can be shake, that can never be shaken or removed or changed because they have been worked out in the course of history and so to look at it from the, an existential an ex, as existential point of view is to make faith rest on this quicksand of changing experience all it, it's it's our feelings that determine this but the cross of Jesus stands alone as one old Scotsman once put it there are some things which are better felt than felt. <laughs> In events of such profound significance as the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the heart can often times come closer to the real meaning than the head can. Pascal said the heart has reasons that the reason that reason knows not of And the record of the Gospels and and the accounts of the crucifixion are designed to bring before us not an emotional, nerve-shattering account of the blood and the agony and the awfulness of the cross, but see, it's amazing, isn't it, how discreet the records are? How it passes over this and, and does not describe really in any detail anything of the awfulness, the agony of the cross, but it is designed to bring before us in a most factual way certain things that touch the heart that reach the heart instead of the head and help us see then not just the wisdom of God, not the programming and the planning of God, but the great, throbbing, loving heart of God. It was John who perhaps gives the clearest answer of any to this question. Why did Jesus die? Why did he insist on dying? When he wrote in the opening of the book of Revelation, unto him who loved us and gave himself for us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 1.5. You see, Jesus died, in other words, because he loved humanity and he longed to set us free from the misery and the bondage of sin. There's no other adequate explanation for the cross of Jesus than that one thing. Jesus loved us and he longed to set us free. And if this is the case then this means that we obviously need to be set free. Humanity needs to be saved. And Jesus is the only one who's qualified to do it. This highlights both the evil of humanity and the love of God. And we'll never be able to grasp what the cross means in any degree at all until we see it against the dark and the terrible background of human bondage and sin. The fact is that humanity is not basically good and kind and compassionate as we so fondly imagine ourselves to be. We have this image of ourselves as being cultured, considerate, thoughtful of others, always interested in the right and the true and the good and the honest and the pure. And we love to look at ourselves that way. But the basic fact, which the cross reveals in all its stark nakedness, in which we catch glimpses of all through human history, is that this is nothing but a thin veneer of civilization. It's, it's just a varnish which we've polished ourselves and which disappears the moment our true interests are challenged. I want to read a brief quote from Sir Winston Churchill. Mr. Churchill said, Certain it is that while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever-increasing speed, their virtues and their wisdom have not shown any notable improvement as the centuries have rolled. Under sufficient stress, starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy, the modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds. And that's what the cross of Jesus helps us see. Jesus Christ came in the midst of humanity doing good, and we hated him for it. And that's the revelation of the human heart. You see, on one occasion, Jesus, remember, Jesus set free a lunatic, a man who had been running around in the mountains like a wild man, naked, tearing his hair and his flesh. And and oftentimes he'd been chained by the people because they said he was possessed by demons. And with one word, with a word from the mouth of Jesus, this man was set free. And then the record says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And what was the reaction of the people to this? Well, they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him that he'd leave, that he'd go away. Why? Well, because in the process of setting this man free, you see, they had lost their pigs. And these people preferred pigs to people. They didn't want Jesus upsetting the status quo, moving in, setting people free like this, ruining their profits, their way of life, etc. And so they chose profits rather than the prophet. And they asked him to leave. What a revelation of the cultured, civilized heart of humanity. His genuine compassion as he moved among people bothered religious leaders because he healed the sick on the Sabbath day when they said he shouldn't. And he he didn't care for their traditions and constantly stepped over the line. And they hated the way that he exposed their pretentious hypocrisies. And he kept saying such searching things, even to his own disciples, that his friends started leaving him and one by one and and as he put himself put it, men would not come to the light because they love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. That's John three, nineteen. And yet through humanity's hatred grew again. though humanity's hatred grew against him until they couldn't wait to get him to a cross. They couldn't wait to get him out of the way, and, and they threw justice to the wind in order to get him nailed to the tree. Yet when it came to the cross itself, God did not take any revenge. The cross was, a, was not a place where God took revenge. It, it could have been so easily to do, wouldn't it? It would have been so easy for God to have said, look, I, I don't mind sending my son to die for these sinners, for these people that are repentant, these, but these religious hypocrites, now's my chance to get even. They, they've, they've mocked me, insulted me, done the things that I asked them not to do. And now here at the cross, I'll, I'll get even. I'll let my son die for the sinners, but not the hypocrites. But God didn't say that. The most remarkable thing to me about the cross of Jesus is that it was also intended for the Pharisees and the hypocrites, for Caiaphas and Annas and for Pilate and Judas and Herod and all the others. When Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. It was because Jesus loved these men as well. And he made it possible to loose them from their sins. Sins of pride, of greed, haughtiness, selfishness, hardiness, or hardness, excuse me, and lovelessness and hate and all the things that we find today breaking out constantly in the stream of human life but john says unto him who loved us and loosed us from our sin in his own blood and we see it it is it is this that we need to be delivered from it's not that we're such open and outward violators of law and justice is that we're such inward hypocrites, constantly covering ourselves up and living one life inside and another outside, putting up facades, fences behind while all the, all the while we, we carry on our affairs, hiding hatred and bitterness and revenge with sweet words and with kind sayings and sometimes kind deeds, but yet inwardly seething sometimes with anger Now it's this that God felt sorry for, and in his pity and in his mercy sent the Son of God to die. That in his blood, this power, the power of this evil, might be broken in our lives. Now blood's not very nice. The cross was not a lovely, pleasant scene. It was a scene of blood, of sweat, of nakedness, of dirt, of filth, of bad smell. But it took this to break the hold of my sin. Now, I'd like to think that just the teachings of Jesus would do this, wouldn't you? I mean, it, I would like to believe that there's something in us so good that when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we respond to it, we want to do it, and not only want to, but carry it out practice, you know, practically. But we know, we've, we've discovered that it never works that way. That the Sermon on the Mount, we admire it, and we can read it, and hunger after it, and think it's a great thing, yet we never found that we could do it until we found ourselves broken by the sight of the blood of our Lord Jesus. When I realized that my, that he bore my sins in his own body on the tree, I realized that if my sins placed on him, the sinless one meant that he must die, that God in his wisdom and grace couldn't find another way to break the power of these things. There, there must be no other way to shake the stranglehold of sin on me but by his death. And we realized how utterly hopeless it was that that we should have ever get anywhere trying to solve this problem ourselves. And when we saw that blood, we knew that he really wanted us. We knew that he loved us and that he wanted us. and And drawn by that love, we come to Jesus and we came to Jesus and we found that what he said was true. That the power of evil within was broken. And that for the first time, The impossible becomes possible. Former humanist E.R. Davies said this, So long as a man nurses the belief that he can save himself, salvation will escape him. And Dr. Paul Rees adds to that, "When When humanity reaches the place where, beaten and humbled, they admit that they can't save themselves, there will not be a half dozen saviors standing around waiting to save them. There will only be one, and his name will be Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the cross, as the scripture brings it to us, is the meeting place between man's hate and God's love. The one laid hold of the other. The two came into this wrestling match in the darkness. The cross of Christ, hate grabs hold of love, love grabs hold of hate, but love triumphed. That's the story of the cross. The love of Jesus is stronger than hate. The love of Jesus is stronger than greed and lust and bitterness and jealousy and haughtiness and prejudice and pride and all the other evil things of human life. In the cross of Jesus, we see our own sin, but in the cross of Christ, we see God's grace as well. And that's the whole story of it. And if any person who comes to the cross, who accepts it, who who and who accepts this fact, who comes in helplessness who stops being defensive, who quits trying to make excuses and bolster up their ego, and comes and just says, it's all true. I need this. I can't save myself. It's then that love begins to manifest its victory over evil, and the glory of grace shines out above the darkness of man's sin. And there is healing and strength and health and pardon. The cross of Jesus is an event far greater than we can possibly hope to to circumscribe or understand it's a mystery we don't understand it we don't know anyone that does fully it's it's like some of the other great mysteries of life of, of, of life itself of love of truth who can understand it who can grasp it who can fully analyze it and lay out and explain it no one can but we know this and this is the great thing and the important thing It isn't important whether we spend an hour or two talking about the theology of the cross or whether we talk about and try to grasp something of the puzzle of predestination versus human free will or some of these things. We can spend hours trying to analyze the workings of God, the plannings, the programmings of God that culminated and ended in the cross and how it worked out in human history. But all of this will leave us absolutely unchanged until we come to grips with this one central fact. Here and here alone, in all of human history, is the power manifested sufficient enough to break the stranglehold of our habits on us, our habits of thought, and begin to set us free. And all through the running centuries, men and women have been coming to the cross of Jesus in this simple way, the educated, the ignorant, the poor, the rich, across all cultures, across all all social divisions and every boundary line that humanity has put up. People have come from all places and all kinds to the cross of Jesus. And invariably, if we've come and if they've come in helplessness, recognizing that we are in the grip of forces greater than we can handle, that life is bigger than we are, and we admit it, we find the cross of Christ that sets us free. None other name, none other lamb, none other other hope in earth or heaven or hell, than this, the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen, and God bless.